Julie Ryan, noted psychic and medical intuitive, is ready to answer your personal questions, even those you never knew you could ask. For more than 25 years, as she developed and refined her intuitive skills, Julie used her knowledge as a successful inventor and businesswoman to help others. Now, she wants to help you to grow, heal, and get the answers you've been longing to hear. Do you have a question for someone who's transitioned? Do you have a medical issue? What about your pet's health or behavior? Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world, take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Ask Julie Ryan Show. I'm Julie, your host, and I'm so delighted you could join us this week. My intention in doing this show is to provide information, insight, and comfort to people all around the world by helping to answer life's unanswerable questions. And this is wedding weekend in Sweet Home, Alabama, in Birmingham. So I'm going to be doing Mother of the Groom stuff, and I'll be busy, so we're not doing a live show. But boy, do I have a surprise for all of you. Dr. Christian Northrup is with us. So how exciting is that? For those of you that don't know, if you've been living under a rock for the last 30 years, Dr. Northrup is an OBGYN physician and a leading authority in the field of women's health and wellness. I call her the fairy godmother of women's health. She's also the New York Times bestselling author of Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, The Wisdom of Menopause, and Goddesses Never Age, The Secret Prescription for Radiance, Vitality, and Well-Being. After spending decades transforming women's understanding of their sacred bodies and processes, Dr. Northrup now teaches women to embrace a new mindset and thrive at every stage of life. Her latest book, Dodging Energy Vampires, offers radical upstream preventative medicine. And I've been following Dr. Northrup for 30 years, and it is such a thrill to have you on the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's so fun to be on a show where I can be 100% my whole self. <laughs> I don't have to hide anything That's from right. the medical authorities. <laughs> That's right. Well, we want you to be 100% your fabulous in your fabulousness. How about that? That's, That's great. That's great. Obviously, we're pre-recording this. I was just telling everybody for the wedding weekend. They've They've been hearing me report on the wedding weekend for a while. So uh, I, of course, will be posting pictures on Facebook and on Instagram and all of that. But in the meantime, what a thrill to have you on the wedding weekend show. I love it. I think it's very symbolic. You know, we have a Libra full moon. The second Libra full moon is uh, April 19th. There was one on March 20th. It's just a new beginning time at, at this time that you and I are speaking. Oh, well, that's good to yeah. know. Yeah, the, the yeah. wedding is May 11th, so that's when this show will be up. But okay, great. So everybody can get to know you a little bit better just as a person, not as this icon, fairy godmother of women's health, but just, just as a person. Um, tell us about your family, your childhood, and what propelled you at the beginning to want to even be a physician and go to medical school. Well, I will tell you that I never intended to be a physician. It was the last thing that I wanted to do because I had watched my aunt and uncle, both MDs, my dad's brother and sister, uh, be doctors, and I thought their lifestyle sucked. And my, my dad was a dentist, 
and they made fun of him because he wasn't a real doctor. He was into health, and he would say, you can tell the state of a person's health by looking in their mouth. Mm -hmm. And he's right, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had a fantastic philosophy of life. He carried his violin everywhere. He was kind of a party in a box. Uh, My parents were into nutrition, and uh, I was brought up on the work of Adele Davis. We had, you know, 12 grain cereal. Our our orange juice was spiked with vitamin C. My (laughs) parents were joggers and did yoga. Okay, now I've got to figure out when they did. They did all this 55 years ago. Oh my gosh. Uh, so we were so on the, on the cutting edge. We had a compost heap. We grew our own vegetables. We, uh, grew organic beef. Uh, and my dad had a real interesting, uh, approach to immunity. Like if you dropped something on the ground, he'd say, you can eat that. Let the earth pass through you and you will be immune to everything. I love that. Wow. Isn't that good? So yeah, That's so a- we weren't. Yeah, That's and we also had quote. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he was a guy way ahead of his time, very interested in health. And and his brother and sister were not. My aunt, a pediatrician, gave me a book when I left for medical school called The Nuts Among the Berries. And you know, it was um to make fun of people who were into quote health food, which we know is just healthy food. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, now the thing that was the radicalizing, you know, I was sort of, what do you call it when they say you were, you were like radicalized long ago. And I was because my, my brother, uh, my sister, my sister, Bonnie, a little girl who I chose the name for, um, died at the age of six months mm-hmm. in the hospital. She wouldn't eat. No one knew what was wrong. And in retrospect, my mother had been given massive doses of an antibiotic called streptomycin for what we now know was viral pneumonia. This mm-hmm. was, you know, where the family went to Florida so she could get some sun, so she could kind of recover. So she was on these uh, antibiotics for the entire pregnancy. And I think that that was a, what somehow caused this baby to not eat. But then my brother Billy was born. And he wouldn't eat. And a nurse came up to my mother in the middle of the night when she was visiting. Now, this was in a time when you could not hold your baby in the nursery. So you could only look at the baby through a little window because hospitals were created as a fortress against germs. Mm-hmm. So, so my mother had seen one baby die in a pool of her own vomit. And she said, well, we're not going to do this again. The doctors didn't know what was wrong with him. And a nurse, this would never happen now, came up to my mother and she said, if I were you, I'd get him out of here. They don't know what's going on. And so my parents signed my brother, Bill, out of the hospital against medical advice, which mm-hmm. you can't do anymore. Mm-hmm. And... They decided if he were going to die, he would die at home mm-hmm. in the arms of his family. And so my dad put down an NG tube, a nasogastric tube, and they fed him every hour on the hour until, oh, and constantly tried to find doctors to find out what was wrong. 
my aunt, the pediatrician, finally hooked them up with a Dr. Crump, great name, at uh, <laughs> Women's mm-hmm. Medical Center, which is now the Medical College of Pennsylvania. But at the time, it was one of the only women's medical colleges. And she was a uh, she was a pioneer in pediatric endoscopy, meaning putting down a fiber optic tube down his esophagus to see what was going on. Now remember that they had told my mother that he was going that he was going to be, and this was the term they used. I know that this term is no longer politically correct, but they said he would be mentally retarded. Mm-hmm. And my mother looked at him and she said, "I knew this kid was not." mentally off. He just wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so they finally, at a year, he was a year old. I had never seen him without adhesive tape, putting an NG tube uh, down his nose. He was 10 pounds at a year. Uh, my mother flew to Philadelphia with him. Dr. Crump said, let's just take the tube out and see what happens. And because she put down a light and she said his esophagus is so eroded that if you keep doing this, it will uh, it will rupture mm-hmm. and he'll die from uh, esophagitis with, uh, with all kinds of crap in the mediastinum around the heart and so on. So they did. And they waited until he got really hungry. And on the third day, he drank some orange juice. Now, that's a dumb thing to give someone with an irritated esophagus. But on the other hand, you know, it was something. And he'd cry, he'd scream after he took a, butt, a gulp, but then he'd take more. Uh-huh. And I remember my mother bringing him home. And we're all there at the airport, all of us older kids. So there's four of us older kids. And we all cried. He got out of the plane holding a roll, holding some bread and eating it. We'd never mm-hmm. seen him eat anything. Mm-hmm. And and that's the rest of the story. He's then, oh, now this, you've got to love this, because this is, you know, I think synchronicity is God's way of remaining anonymous. So I'm a young, you know, person applying to medical school, and I apply to medical school at the University of Buffalo. I didn't go there, but I applied. I go in, who's the guy interviewing me? the attending physician from my brother, Billy, when he was a baby. And he looks at me and he says, are you from the town of Ellicottville, those Ellicottville Northrop's? And I said, yes, I am. He, and, you know, because when you're a doctor, you you remember the cases where you didn't know what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so he asked me. um, And uh, I said, he's fine. And he's uh, above normal intelligence. And, uh, you know, the guy just kind of sat there. Now, my mother was asked to bring him into Grand Rounds after he was getting better. Mm-hmm. And she took him into Grand Rounds, and Grand Rounds at that time was uh, very impersonal. You know, she brought him out into an auditorium of all these doctors. And uh, then they charged her for an office visit. And she said, that's it. That's it. We're We're not going back. And so I remember... You know, I was never going to go to med school, but I finished college with a degree in biology. I wanted to be a biology teacher. I always loved biology, but I also uh, had a degree in applied music because I uh, always wanted to play the harp since I was, I don't know, just always wanted to play the harp. So I, I, I did, and I went to 
uh, Case Western Reserve in Cleveland to study with my harp teacher at the Cleveland Institute of Music. And um, I finished college with a, a bachelor's degree in biology. And I had some scholarships that I had uh, won. And I thought, well, I'll just get a master's degree and teach biology. And I called my advisor. And he goes, Chris, that's like a thoroughbred running a junk horse race. Why don't you go to medical school? Mm. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll go to medical school. I didn't think I would ever practice. I had no desire to do anything like that. Um, although, you know, I'd always been really interested in health and the body and yoga and all of that. And uh, so I went to med school. And when I first saw a baby born, this was at Dartmouth, I just wept. I thought I was going to fall to the floor weeping Aww. with the beauty of it. But also, you know, also I realized in retrospect, and this took me years, and I, I want your listeners to really hear this because I think we all have a soul curriculum. And my soul curriculum was very much connected with my mother, obviously. And I know now that that reaction when I saw a baby born and just about fell to my knees weeping was about my own uh, grief about having a mother who really just didn't know how to love me. I was the black sheep. I was different from the rest of them. You know, she wanted, I mean, she said, I always thought I'd have six boys. And I said, well, you know, you did, or God knows you tried. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. you're the and only girl? Was, no, but everyone was into athletics and all of that. You know, I mean, here I am. It, it, my parents said to me, we noticed early on in you the tendency to want to sit by the fire and read. <laughs> and, you know, so therefore we got to route that out of her as soon as possible. Oh, Cause they so were such we were an athletic group. So athletic. My mother's idea of a great time was five sports a day oh my and gosh. having five kids because of the time frame. you know, you, everyone had kids after the war. I'm right. a baby boomer. And, uh, and I think she, she was like a caged lion. I mean, she'd always wanted to be a forest ranger, you know? So mm-hmm. here she is. Mm-hmm. But but her story is amazing. I mean, she grew up with a father who was a bootlegger. There was a bullet hole over her crib. Her <laughs> mother broke her father out of jail for when he was put in jail for bootlegging. Oh um, and she saw the movie Sun Valley Serenade with Sonia Henney when she was a teenager. And she saw skiing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she said that was going to be her salvation. So she took the train from Buffalo down to Ellicottville, New York, and was and and met my father there after mm-hmm. the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he came back from the war, and then he and his friend Carl, who had been on the German Olympic team in the '30s, took my mother out to Sun Valley to get her involved in ski racing. There was no romantic thing at all, but they sort of fell in love on the way back. Mm. Now, you know, so she was, so her life was kind of, you know, like the sound of music. Mm-hmm. Um, being was her salvation. And and she's been an incredible role model. I mean, she did the Appalachian Trail with her 
good friend Anne, an ex-nun, and they did that in their 70s. She went to Mount Everest Base Camp at the age of 84. Uh, she climbed the you know, 100 highest peaks in New England. Many of them are unmarked. Um, so, you know, she's, a, she's really something. And because of that role model, I, you know, I don't even imagine, I, I don't even think about age because I've had that role model of someone right. who's been so vital for so long. Right. So anyway, but my, <laughs> I went into OBGYN really, truly to heal my own relationship with my mother, you know, so let's help other women give birth so that you can, <laughs> you can heal your own unhealed wound from a mother who just, you know, I was just like an outlier. And I understand that now, you know. Well, I think it's fascinating, too, that at the time when you were in medical school, in an Ivy League school, no less, Dartmouth, yeah. uh, I can't imagine there were too many women in medical school, number one. And number oh, there two, were, there that were. So odd. 50% of my class was women. Okay. But were, did you feel like you were railroaded into certain specialties because you were a woman? And did you feel like you were treated differently in medical school? as a woman than your fellow students who were men. Uh, yes, but let me tell you what was so interesting about it. And this is important, I think, for everybody. Um, it was, there weren't any laws yet about affirmative action or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But the zeitgeist was, um, you know, it was kind of the time of uh, the strike generation, Jane Fonda going over to North Korea, of the Vietnam War coming to a close, people realizing that that wasn't such a good idea. There was just this, uh, you know, Kent State, mm-hmm. Woodstock, all of that. So there was a huge raising of consciousness. And so what happened, and also what happened as a result of having a mother who was um, so capable and a father who absolutely supported her, I went to med school, and when sexist things would happen, um, I would sometimes mention it, but always like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, like a lady with with humor, you know, like not fighting the Mm -hmm. system, because I knew that that was dumb. Now, I was kind of the last class where they were using uh, Vargas pinup models from Playboy magazine uh, to teach anatomy. Honest to God, they had some slides where they used that. But things were changing. I was right at this point in time where things changed. So I remember as a med student, I'm looking at this guy who had uh, ichthyosis vulgaris, which is a dermatologic skin condition like alligator skin. And the attending physician just gave me his socks to put back on because I was the woman. Mm-hmm. And I would just look at him and say, oh, yeah, I get it. Because I'm female, I know how to put these on, but nobody else does. Or if there was a, a birthday, I remember they would hand me the knife to cut the cake because I was a woman. Mm-hmm. And I would just just say something, but not in a, in a nasty way. Um, now, let me tell you what was interesting. The specialty of OBGYN back then was considered what dumb people went into. If you were smart, you went into internal medicine. Interesting. And I remember thinking, this is insane. The spe- 
specialty that is taking care of the next generation is considered the lowly thing that, you know, if you were really smart, you should become an internist, like only the doomfuses go into OBGYN. I thought that was the dumbest thing I ever heard. Mm. Um, and now that's changed. I mean, now it's, you know, a very sought after specialty and it's pretty much being taken over by women. Right. And that's about time. Although the, you know, the chiefs of the departments are still men. Mm-hmm. But I well, know why that is. Okay. And, and, and OBGYNs are surgeons too. They're not just, you know, doctors in the office prescribing meds and, and uh, no. doing things like no, that. No, it, 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 yeah. it's an amazing specialty, but it is also, uh, you have to be, it has to be a calling because it's enormously difficult. Right. Uh, you know, the hours, sure. babies come at night and, you know, and it's also, it is a specialty where mostly people are healthy, but I have to say, I always had ideas about how it ought to be that were not the mainstream. Like when I started, Suzanne Arms had just come out with her book, Immaculate Deception, <laughs> which was, you know, like you don't need to shave the pubic hair and give an enema and then paint the perineum with betadine. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I first started, we were draping women who were giving birth like it was a surgical procedure. Mm-hmm. So you'd have a drape on there and then the, the the perineum, the vagina where the baby came out, that was the operative field. Oh and gosh. I remember at Dartmouth, uh, women would give birth and they'd whisk the baby off to the nursery to, mm-hmm. quote, clean it up. Mm-hmm. And they would clamp the cord like immediately. Like, why are we doing this? This is the umbilical cord that oxygenates the baby while its body is making the most profound changes of its life, mm-hmm. moving from the mother's blood to room air. That's why there, you have the umbilical cord in order to give it a gentle transition. I had all these ideas that seemed so obvious to me. Mm-hmm. And they weren't obvious to anyone else. One of my favorites was uh, a resident at Cambridge City Hospital, and I decided I was going to take the baby and just put it on the mother's abdomen, which is what any mammal will do. I mean, you know, if <laughs> there's a great play called Birth, and the first line is, I want what my dog got. <laughs> I mean, okay, so <laughs> anyway, I take the baby, and I put it on the mother's chest. Mm-hmm. And my attending physician says, her hand touched your glove. Now you're not sterile. <laughs> I said, Dr. McGovern, the only way to sterilize a baby is to boil it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> so it sounds like humor. Your humor has gotten you through Many, many situations that could be dicey. My favorite story about the female thing, my first business partner uh, was 28 years older than I, male, brilliant guy, engineer, MIT and, and Stanford, you know, engineering programs. And we were in a meeting and we were doing something and he hands me a piece of paper. He said, will you go Xerox that for me? And I said, what do you have a broken leg? <laughs> <laughs> he looked up at me like oh my God, you're right. And he burst out laughing and he never asked it again. See, that's the thing. If we did it that way, instead of, you know, filing a sexual harassment claim, 
I mean, but you know, I, but I do understand that, right. that women have been silenced for decades, for generations, for centuries. I get all that. Well, you know? and he was used to having a bunch of secretaries that would take care of his every whim. And I was a business partner. I was his equal. I was not. Oh, listen, I, you know, I remember once I'm at a meeting of the American Holistic Medical Association and one of my colleagues, a family medicine guy, he goes, well, you know how when you make rounds, the nurse follows you with the charts and takes notes for you? And I looked at him and I said, what? What? I have not once had a nurse follow me around making rounds at the hospital and helping me out. Like, that never happened. Uh-huh. But it happened for men because the nurses were their handmaidens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, back to when you were practicing, how, how long did you practice? Okay, and, I and it practiced. was primarily in Maine, right? Yes, yes. So I first went to Maine in, when did I go into <laughs> I'm thinking, um, 78, 79. Mm-hmm. And I joined a group there. I went, I ran the, um, the residency clinics at St. Margaret's Hospital for Women in Dorchester, Massachusetts for a couple years. And then during that time, because our plan was to move to Maine, I would go up to Maine and do a trial run at a private practice uh, two days every other week mm-hmm. because they weren't sure that they should hire a woman. And what they told me is the women in Maine did not want to see women. They only wanted to see men. And I thought, well, that's interesting because in uh, everywhere else, I was being hotly sought after, you know, Mm -hmm. because a woman OBGYN, people really wanted that around New York and Connecticut. But, you know, so, so they just had to test me out to see if anyone would actually come to see me. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Maine full-time after my then-husband finished his uh, fellowship in revision total hips at New mm-hmm. England Baptist because I was married to an orthopedic surgeon for 24 years. And so then the two of us uh, moved to Maine, and then I was in a conventional practice for six or seven years and then co-founded Women to Women, the probably the first women-run, women-only clinic uh, in the United States in the 80s. And then I was there for 13 years. And then after that, I began to realize that it would be easier and more effective if I could educate women. So what I say now is having become board certified in everything that can go wrong with the female body, I now want to teach women everything that can go right with their body and how to make it their experience. Well, and that and that isn't that what we're seeing in medicine, especially on the periphery with visionaries like you and and others that are saying, okay, wait, what we're doing really isn't always working a lot of the time, and so let's go back to some of the basics, which is what it, what I've heard you talk about over the years, and and also how do we change the mindset of all of that indoctrination of the medical community, because you of all people know, it just doesn't change very quickly. No, uh, you know, there's a, there's a quote by a, yeah, by a physicist um, who says, science moves forward one funeral at a time. 
<laughs> well, right. I've read that it that it can be up to 18, 19 years before something becomes mainstream, even if all the research is showing that it's super effective. And, and well, that's my experience. It's still it is still 17 to 18 years. That is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Absolutely been verified over and over again. And I'm, you know, I'm one of those when it comes to health, early adapters. Like if it's something that won't hurt anybody, mm-hmm. why don't we give it a try? It, it, it shocks me that people need proof before starting things like increasing your vitamin D or even checking your level. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I look at my career and the things that I've said about mammograms and, um, you know, folic acid and uh, omega-3s in baby formula. It just goes on and on, the stuff that I said years ago. And then, you know, 20 years later, everyone goes, oh, well, that's obvious. Well, it wasn't at the time. <laughs> right. And, and I'm sure you got an awful lot of pushback from a lot of different camps in some of these, quote, I'm doing air quotes, radical ideas that you had about... Oh, huge. No, huge, huge pushback. Tell us a little bit about that and your experiences. And was there a specific incident that you can recall where you just felt like, okay, the switch has been flipped. There's no going back. I got to make a major change here. Okay. Yeah. Let me give you what I would call a real, well, this is, I would call it the dark night of the soul. Mm -hmm. Um, where I was tested. I think Mm -hmm. we could say that. Mm -hmm. And that was, um, I'm practicing at Women to Women, and uh, I also studied with Michio Kushi, who was the founder of Macrobiotics in the United States. And at the end of my residency, I would sit with Michio while he did consultations using traditional Chinese medicine, oriental medicine, they called it, and people would come in who had uh, a cancer diagnosis, and they had been through everything. They'd been through chemo, radiation, and they were given up on, really. And that's when people would come to the alternative view. And they'd come in with huge charts. And some of them, after they changed their diet and so on, did very, very well. Like, I, I saw miracles occur with a change in diet and lifestyle. And I watched my profession um, just put those people down. Like, um, you know, how this? Uh, why would you use brown rice? Why would you change your diet? There's absolutely no evidence that nutrition does anything. And I thought, you're in no position to judge. You have done everything you could with your armamentarium that nearly killed this person. And now, you're judging them for trying something like diet? That always seemed so, the hypocrisy of that, it's really bugged me in, mm-hmm. in a profession that's purportedly supposed to be healers. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, I was known in the macrobiotic community. And a woman came to see me from Massachusetts who had had narrowing of her stool. And so she started on her own, She started a macrobiotic diet. Her surgeon called me to tell me she was coming in. And I, and in retrospect, he was telling me what he wanted me to tell her, you Mm -hmm. know, but I'm the little girl and he's going to tell me. Mm -hmm. And uh, she comes in and all of her symptoms for which she had had the testing were all gone. She was feeling fine. And I said to her, 
okay, so here's what let's do. Because he said, this was bowel cancer until proven otherwise. And I said, okay, it might be, but all your symptoms are gone. So why don't we wait a couple months and redo your tests at another hospital? We'll do it up at Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. And she agreed with that. Uh, I sent a very kind, thorough letter back to her general surgeon. And I said, you know, she is of sound mind and she can make her own decisions. And this is what she's decided. And I support her in that. (laughs) The reason is I knew one case, a a woman physician and her husband, a surgeon, he had liver cancer with metastases to the liver and he completely healed with a macrobiotic diet. Now, that's not a clinical study, but you know, a one swallow does not make a spring, but if there's a swallow there, you should take note. So the woman said, you know, I'm totally willing to do that. And then her surgeon reported me to the Board of Registration in Medicine in the state of Maine oh, wow. for treating cancer with a macrobiotic diet. Mm-hmm. And he said, is it the, uh, is it the what do you call it? standard of practice? in Maine, to treat cancer with a macrobiotic diet. And Mm -hmm. I was terrified Mm -hmm. because I didn't have anyone in my court at that time, Mm -hmm. um, you know, who would support me. I was just going along with clinically what felt relevant with a patient who was feeling great, okay? And, um, And the board only met like every three months, and I was completely terrified. And I felt it in my gut, in my solar plexus for weeks. And then one day I, I sat down, I was doing a practice called proprioceptive writing. And by the way, I had some uh, women physicians who said, look, if you have to go before the board, call us, we will go with you because this could be a nasty experience for you and we want to support you. So that was so important. Yeah. And then I also realized, wait a minute, if I can't practice medicine, according to my own ethics, then I can't do it. I'll become a cocktail waitress. I really <laughs> had that in my head or I'll, you know, play my harp at weddings or do something. Uh-huh. But I can't be in a situation where a patient and I together cannot decide right. our treatment. That is, that's just wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and I prayed about it and, you know, and I knew that if I could heal it inside, it would go away outside. Mm-hmm. And, so one day I sat down and this sort of wave came over me and I wrote this guy a letter. I, I sort of was, uh, I had a lot of compassion for him and I wrote a letter as part of this writing practice, not a letter to send. And later that day, I'm getting a cup of coffee at Grand Rounds and one of my colleagues who was on the board came up and he said, oh, by the way, your case was dismissed. She had written to the board saying she was in total agreement with me. This is what she wanted to do. And uh, they, you know, they just stood by me and dropped the, the case. Mm-hmm. And then I had all of her tests repeated and everything was completely normal. And I sent her test results to the surgeon in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And I said, isn't the healing power of the human body miraculous? Mm-hmm. And that was all. And interestingly, my husband at the time uh, really was much more conventional and, and really couldn't, you know, he wasn't sure that he wouldn't have reported me as well, which was not so good. Anyway, <laughs> when, when, the, um, when the test came back, 
uh, all normal. He said, why don't you write to him and say, is it the standard of practice in Massachusetts to remove normal colon? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the like the, the comeback. And I said, no, no, no. The war has to stop somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's going to stop with me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was a huge turning point for me. Uh, because I had all kinds of skirmishes like that. I mean, you know, it was it was a tough go, but it was what I knew always is that this was my this was my soul's path. It's what mm-hmm. I had to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most of us have busy lives, and we know that we're not getting the nutrients and the vitamins and the minerals that we need. So I'm always looking for easy ways to ingest them. I found one. It's called Beam Minerals. And what I find is that most of us don't get enough potassium, magnesium, and calcium. Those are the big three. And so what Beam Minerals does is it's put all these minerals in a liquid form that's easy to drink because it tastes like water. It's got all these important minerals and a whole bunch of other ones. And I find that they're really helpful. They save me time. They're easy to take. And I suggest that you give them a try. Go to Beam Minerals, B as in boy, E-A-M, minerals, plural, dot com, and use the code Julie Ryan, altogether, no space, at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your order. That's Beam Minerals, B-E-A-M, minerals.com and use Julie Ryan at checkout and you'll get a 20% discount. Give it a try and let me know what you think. Exactly. And I'm seeing that with clients with whom I work because I really see these amazing healings occur when I'm working with somebody on a medical case. And I watch these energetic healings that emulate what happens in the OR. And as an inventor of surgery devices, I know what goes on in the OR because I was in it for 30 years in and out of it. And sometimes I see procedures happen with energetically with um, methodologies and devices that I don't believe have been invented yet. And the stuff I see in my head, Chris, is just, I laugh, I tell people, who needs drugs? Just learn how to do woo-woo. Because, oh, I know. Listen, you know. I, that's why I think it is because we know with healing, there's just so much that we don't know. Right. Um, how could you not use the services of someone like you? I mean, uh, way back in uh, 85, I had my first reading with Carolyn Mace, the uh, medical intuitive. And she, mm-hmm. she said to me, um, you're a rescue addict. Do you hear me? Your heart has changed its beat pattern in the last year. So Mm -hmm. you better work on this. And then the other thing she told me is I was in my energy field was a big ovarian tumor. And if I hadn't left my conventional practice, uh, that would have manifested physically. Mm -hmm. So I knew that if I didn't get out of my marriage, I was going to get inflammatory breast cancer bilateral and be dead in three months. Mm-hmm. I knew that. And how, you know, you can't prove that, but I just knew that. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, it, and I see things in my mind's eye when I'm scanning somebody, obviously with their permission. I don't scan anybody without their permission because I'm just right. unethical. 
Can I do it? Yes. Will I do it? No. But what I do is is watch these healings occur and I can see where the disease is or where the whatever that's that's a problem is. And then I watch these healings occur and then the x-rays or the CT scans or the MRIs are different. And the docs are saying, okay, what are you doing? And, and <laughs> my clients are, you know, I have clients that'll say to their doctors, well, I'm working with this woman who's doing voodoo medicine. And a lot of the doctors will say, good, tell her to keep it up. Some of them have even called me to find out what I'm doing and they've become advisors to me at this point but well see there the thing is that a a good doctor will do that i mean to me i remember my very first astrologic reading okay in about 1981 Mm -hmm. was with a woman on the mousam river near kenny kenny point maine and she said to me if you knew the number of your physician colleagues who came to see me you would be astounded but that the culture of medicine is such that you don't dare talk about this stuff because medicine is solidly in the wrong paradigm. It's in the Newtonian paradigm, not the energetic quantum paradigm. Right. And so you feel like um, a heretic. So what I used to do when I was doing like a hysterosalpingogram down in the radiology department, you know, where you're putting dye up the tubes to see if they're open mm-hmm. or not for mm-hmm. fertility. Mm-hmm. I would always do some Reiki, some therapeutic touch afterward. And it got to the point where if there was an old gray-haired radiologist, you know, who looked like third-generation Harvard, I would just do it harder. Because I just thought, you know what, I got nothing to lose here. I had plenty to lose, but I just had to do it, mm-hmm. but in a humorous way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I'm starting to see there are enough clients with whom I've worked that were stage four cancer patients told to go home and get a hospice in and get your affairs yes, in order. Like that, yeah. Who yeah. are out walking around and they're cancer free and it's been a long time. And I believe the work that I do, the energetic work that I do, is complementary to a lot of the Western medicine stuff that that we know. And I think they go hand in hand. But certainly I believe everything can be healed. I also believe that it's the spirit's path to do what they want. It's their prerogative to do what they want with that healing and how, however it serves them best in this life experience to manifest and experience whatever they want to do in this lifetime. Certainly that's all comes into play, but I can see the forces coming together. And most of the time it's when I have a client who's, been healed, for lack of a better word, from whatever their diagnosis was. And they're, and you're right, there's always an emotional component. And I always work on that with them. And we heal that too. It always precedes any kind of disease or illness or medical condition. But the other thing that's interesting is what I'm finding is that then those physicians and surgeons are calling me and want me to scan them. Well, I scan them and I nail stuff. And then they're going, okay, there's no way you would know this stuff. And there's that's no way... Right. You- that's and then, right. and then it just changes the whole paradigm, and then they start saying, "Okay, well, maybe there really is something to this." And they, some of them are even starting to send their patients to me when they can't figure out a diagnosis, which is really fun for me to be able to collaborate with them and with you. You and I have worked on several 
That's uh, right. That's right. Clients. And you know, I used to um, have Carolyn Mace on speed dial in my office, and mm-hmm. she would be willing to do a reading um, for my patients when I couldn't figure out what was going on. But what was interesting back then, so this was in the 80s, right? 90s. Mm-hmm. Back then, this was so not mainstream that I would only offer it to about 5% of my patients. Right. You know, because uh, people really, they, they're, they're addicted to the notions that this thing just came out of the woodwork and landed on them or <laughs> that they have bad genes that, mm-hmm. you know, that your, your state of health has nothing to do with your life. And mm-hmm. of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Right, right. Well, and that goes into my next question for you. And that is, when, when did you realize, I, it's sounding like from the beginning, but when did you realize that intuition and spirituality play a role in our health and women's health and everybody's health? And was there an aha moment for you where you just said, okay, I've got to combine these two? Because certainly in your books and in the, in what you teach and what you, what you talk about, spirituality is a huge component in how you teach people how to sometimes regain health, keep health, you know, preventative right. strategies how how do those go hand in hand for you well when i was about 11 or 12 i was babysitting for this family and there was a uh, a book that had come in the mail and the uh, i saw it in this cardboard mailer and the title was natives of eternity now i was the ultimate good girl but I opened that box (laughs) because I had to see what that was. And it was a book by Flower Newhouse, a Christian mystic, Mm. about her experiences of working directly with the angels and the nature spirits, the divas, the fire spirits, the angels of death, the angels of birth. And I was so excited that I went home and I said to my mother, Oh, God, what I always thought was true is, in fact, true, mm-hmm. that there are these other forces and we can work with them. And she called up the woman I'd been babysitting it was her grandchildren. She called her up and uh, she said how excited I was. And so this woman, Gretchen Carroll, uh, they managed to make sure I got a copy of that book, which I still have, and thus began a whole series of brunches that this much older woman, Gretchen, um, hosted for me. And I would go over to her house and we would discuss spirituality. Hmm. Uh, But also I read everything by Edgar Cayce, um, many mansions, uh, all of that stuff. I read that uh, in my teen years. I read uh, Joan Grant's books about reincarnation. She had a whole series of novels based on her past lives. Uh, So I was always interested in metaphysics. And then when, uh, you know, when my sister died and my brother uh, was taken out of the hospital against medical advice. Oh, and my dad too. When When I was interviewing in med school, my dad had chest pain. So he went into Buffalo General Hospital and uh, to the 
cardiac care unit, and he called my mother two days later, and he said, Edna, come and get me. They don't know what's going on. His IV had infiltrated. He had a high fever. And he said, they don't know what's going on. He had fluid two-thirds of the way up in his lung field. And when I came back from my interview, he was sitting up in a chair because he couldn't lie flat. And uh, he healed on his own. He had uh, infectious pericarditis. He didn't have a heart attack. Wow. So I had all these experiences that taught me about the limitations of medicine. And then my patients would tell me incredible stories of things that had happened in their families. And, uh, you know, then, of course, you, by the law of attraction, you attract like attracts like. So I've worked with uh, Kyle Gray, who works with angels and, you know, just all of these kind of miraculous things. So to me, you you really can't be, uh, you can't really take care of a patient without bringing in these aspects because they add to it. I wrote a book called Making Life Easy, and what it really was about is spirituality. Like, if you don't have any, if you really believe you're a victim, then your life is like a booze cruise on steroids. But... If you know, if you know that there's a there's a greater purpose that everything happens for a reason, um, then you're in the driver's seat. Then you mm-hmm. can put your keys in the ignition. Mm-hmm. Then you're not a victim, right? But all that, all that said, if people don't understand the huge forces in medicine that keep people, I mean, the average sixty five year old person is on six pharmaceutical drug prescriptions mm-hmm. a day. Right. This is insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, like, I, I don't, you. okay, let me be clear, everybody. I don't even go to the doctor. I don't want to go. I know what they're selling and I don't want it. My health care is massage. It's acupuncture. It's calling you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <this is> my health care. <laughs> well, and- and that's a big statement coming from you that yeah. you that you are you've been to the other side obviously in and trained in some of the top medical schools oh, on yeah. the planet and, yeah. and practiced for decades and and helped many many women as a practicing physician and now you're helping to educate the world as one more time the fairy godmother of women's health and i say that with reverence and you don't go to the doctor now certainly if you were in a car accident and you needed to go to a trauma center you would go to the emergency room but you're oh, talking about people no those are the best people on the planet but for right. basic health maintenance basic um you know so right. let me just say loud and proud you know i've never had a mammogram i always knew that 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 test is diagnosing way too many things you would die with but not die from so it has resulted in an enormous increase in prophylactic mastectomies that never needed to happen. That's a whole subject unto itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look now at all the adult vaccines, the pneumonia vaccine, the measles, the, the uh, shingles vaccine, um, the flu shot. I see people tanking after having these uh, messing with their immune systems this way. Um, I Like I said, Women's health, here's how I describe current women's health. You don't have it yet. Keep coming back. We'll find it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I trust 
my body's ability to heal. Right now, what we have going on on the planet is this enormous measles scare. Mm-hmm. Like measles is the black plague. Mm-hmm. The truth is we all had measles and there's some good evidence that it helps the immune system prevent cancer later. So let me be completely radical. I would love it if my granddaughters could get measles and chicken pox because they would get lifetime immunity. And there's something about getting the childhood diseases when your immune system is healthy and when you have enough vitamin A around and all of that, that is actually very beneficial. Mm -hmm. And so this current craziness about, you know, anti-vaxxers, you know, that would be like, you want safer car seats. So if you want a safer car seat, we call you an anti-car seater. (laughs) Dumb. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and and big pharma and lots of other forces, it's all about the dollar, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it is. That's all what's propelling this rage against people who are really exercising their First Amendment rights to make those decisions for whatever they want for themselves and their family members. And it's, yeah. it, you know, being squashed. So, right. Yeah, it's, but it's, we're at an interesting time. It's the Pluto return of the United States. And what that means is it's kind of a redo of uh, what the founding fathers did. Because mm-hmm. at that time, you know, women didn't have the right to vote. They weren't really people. They were slaves. I mean, that, you know, it was a, if all men are created equal. Yeah, men, white men. <laughs> we're in a it, we're in a time of uh, a great deal of turmoil and rebirth. I would call it right, which is good because that's how we expand. We need to know what we don't want in order to know what we do want, and that that's gives exactly right. Exactly that gives right. Those of us who are entrepreneurs and and. Uh, visionaries and all of that. And I think all of us have a spark of that in us, whether or not we let it shine, but it lets us come up with new ways to solve problems and enhance our lives and better lives of others as well, because we know this isn't working. What is it that we can do to make life better? That's right. That's that's, right. So we're in a a great time of, I think, the light getting lighter. The dark's getting darker. It's just out where you can see it. I mean, we've had dark forces running the government and pharma and big food for a long time, but now it it really can't hide anymore. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. Well, we do this show every Thursday night at 8 Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. The call-in number is 712-770-4160, and the access code is 533-677-POUND. You can get this information anywhere you download podcasts. We're on dozens and dozens and dozens of networks. It's in the show notes. It's on my website, AskJulieRyan.com. Just scroll down to the homepage. I post it on social media on Thursdays to remind people to call in. And normally, as you know, I, I take callers every week and it can be a question about health or the pet or the somebody, loved one who's dying or what's a career thing or past lives or whatever. And it makes it really fun. I, I tell people I'm a, I'm a businesswoman who learned how to do woo-woo and I'm a buffet of psychicness. So it makes it fun because every show is different and every question is different. And so it's just a blast. So what an honor to have you join us on my 
one or two shows a year where I have a guest. And we've just got a, a couple of minutes left. But in closing, first of all, how can everybody find you? What's the best, no, the best way? Just go to the website, drnorthrop.com. I have a e-letter that goes out a couple times a month. And I'm on um, Facebook a lot. And uh, that goes over to Twitter. Sometimes I'm on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you have a show.com. Yeah. You have a show that you And do. I got a radio show every Wednesday, HayHouseRadio.com. It's called Flourish. It's a call in show. And that's at 11 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday. Right. Right. Okay. So, in closing, bottom line, what is your hope? What's your fervent hope for how your work can affect people's lives or or what effect it's going to have on people's lives. If I said to you, okay, give me an elevator speech in you know, 20 words yeah. or less of what you hope to accomplish with all of these efforts of this amazing career you've had and, and your amazing courage to buck the system and to go out on these limbs that have been proven to be correct. And well, you know, I mean, that's, that goes without saying and kudos to you on that. But, but what do you hope to accomplish with your work? I hope, and this happens where somebody will listen to my work, hear my work, read my work and say, I already knew that. I just never heard a doctor say it. Mm -hmm. I hope to awaken the inner wisdom that is already there in somebody by giving them a bridge so that they understand their intuition knew it, but they needed to hear a doctor say it. And then they get stronger in believing themselves and believing in themselves and their own ability to be, to be healthy and to thrive. Mm -hmm. Well said, well said. I feel like I should stand up and clap, give you a stand. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with that, You know I adore you. I feel so blessed to have you in my life. What an honor to have you for an hour to share with all my listeners. And uh, and everybody will be back next. I'll be back next week answering regular questions. So call in with your questions and and turn into Dr. Northrop's show too because you'll learn a lot. With that, thanks everybody. Take care. I'll post my wedding pictures online. So look at them at Ask Julie Ryan on Facebook and on Instagram. And you can find Dr. Northrop the same places. So thanks everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan and like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.